All right. Scripture reading for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 24. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits." But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as also I am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prissa greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand. Paul, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that uh, we get to continue hearing from your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the love that is on display here, the love between brothers, uh, the love of the church and of service, Lord, um, the disciplined minds uh, that were set to that service of love, Lord. Uh, it's not merely a spontaneous uh, feeling, Lord, uh, but that it is a practice and a, and a way of living in love, Lord. I pray that... Um, we would seek to be like Paul and the people he recommends here and be disciplined lovers and workers, Lord, uh, in our walks with you. Pray that you would bless Tom as he teaches this morning. Lord, bless our hearts to be open to hear what he has to say, Lord, that we'd be attentive uh, and alert. Lord, I thank you for all the good gifts you give us for the beautiful weather we have today, Lord, and the many opportunities we're going to have to serve this week. Lord, I pray that you would keep our eyes open for those opportunities. In your name I pray, amen. 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 Thank you, brother. Good morning. Good morning. Very good to, to be with you guys. It's nice to be in friendly territory. 
<laughs> we've, uh, we've come to the, the end of this marvelous epistle. Only took 37 lessons. <laughs> and uh, the, the final chapter, oh, by the way, I'll let you know that, that next week our intention is to, uh, to do a wrap-up. So uh, we're going to do a wrap-up next week, a review of, of the major, kind of the, the argument of the book or the flow of the book and the big themes. Won't be able to hit all of them, but we'll hit some of them. Uh, this last chapter, like all of the rest, uh, does not disappoint when it, and when it comes to the timeless relevance and the, and the trans, transforming power of everything that Paul wrote to the saints that he loved in the city of Corinth so long ago. Um, if we rewind all the way back to the first chapter of this letter, we're reminded that Paul's very first exhortation and first rebuke directed to the Corinthians was about the divisions and quarrels that existed among them. He told them that to divide the body of Christ is to divide Christ himself. Um, it is through the community, the spiritual household of God, that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is being advanced on this earth because we, have said this many times, we are the continuing incarnation of Christ on this earth by God's design. We are the bearers together of Christ and of, of the word of the cross, the gospel. There can be no community without unity. And so it's no surprise that Paul ends this letter as he ends most of his letters with deeply personal and very practical encouragement and instruction that calls the saints to make the love of one another their greatest priority as an outworking of their love for God. This chapter is about real historical people doing things that, that show Jesus off in the world and that proclaim him. It, it's really a, a marvelous snapshot of what productive Christianity looks like as you review the, what he says about the people that he's speaking of here and, and what he commands. At the very heart of everything that Paul instructs, encourages, and celebrates in this last chapter is the command in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. The last few verses of the chapter make it clear that he means love for God and for the children of God. Those last, last three verses say, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, anathema. And then he says, Maranatha, come Lord. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So love for God, love for one another, just like in that window up there. We saw in chapter 13 that it is possible for believers to do things that look good by outward measures, like caring for the needs of the poor but to do those things without godly love. And when that happens, those impressive looking things become useless by God's declaration. They become worthless, void. It is love that makes every good thing that God has created and every activity of God's people eternally useful in his hands. And you take the love away, useless, useless. In the first four verses of the chapter, it is money 
that is made useful by God, by godly love. When money is mentioned in the New Testament, it's very interesting. When money is mentioned in the New Testament in a positive way, it's pretty much always money that's given away rather than kept. Paul instructs the Corinthians here regarding the collection of financial gifts for the heavily persecuted and impoverished saints in the city of Jerusalem. He had already given the same instructions to the churches of Galatia. Galatia is a region in, in kind of central part of what is today Turkey. And you'll see some, some cities there that you ought to recognize in, in the narrative in the book of Acts, especially like Derby, where Timothy was from, Antioch, Lystra, it's Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Derby, Iconium. We know from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that the churches in another region, Macedonia, up here, included uh, that those were also part of this project to, uh, to gather donations for the saints in Jerusalem. And Macedonia included the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Again, all, all spoken of in the book of Acts. And of course, Philippi and Thessalonica got letters from Paul. Corinth was actually a far more prosperous and vibrant city economically than any of any of those cities in Galatia or Macedonia. <laughs> so the Corinthians' participation in this effort to lovingly care for brothers and sisters in Christ who were suffering great financial and personal hardship because, because of their love for Christ, it should have been a no-brainer. Should have been a no-brainer. Paul's instructions here make it clear that, that caring for the body of Christ financially, both, both for our own local church and for saints in faraway places, is not something to be done as an afterthought or a burdensome requirement. <laughs> for a, a believer who has received from God the unfathomable riches of Christ, there is just no sense to giving no thought to, to what God would have us do with our money until we're sitting here on Sundays ferreting through our wallets or our purses. It's supposed to be a much more deliberate, intentional, and prayerful matter than that. The saints in Corinth and other cities were not to wait until Paul showed up there on a Sunday and then take, take up a random collection for the saints, uh, saints in Jerusalem. They were to diligently set aside some money every week when they gathered together on the Lord's day. The amount of money that each person was, was to give was entirely between that person and God. The words, each, of you, each one of you, as he may prosper, speak of a very different standard than we find in some, some churches today. Each as he may prosper means no pledge cards, no one looking over your shoulder to see what you contributed, no plaques with names on them to show which well-to-do Christian made the biggest contribution to a work of ministry or to a building or to a pew or to a hymnal. It's just let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper. We must not miss the first words in that exhortation. Guys, each one of you means each one of you. The notion that some Christians are exempt from lovingly giving to support the needs of, 
of the body of Christ at home and elsewhere because their own needs are too great for them to part with anything that God has put into their hands. That, that mindset is foreign. It's foreign to everything that's said about money in the New Testament. It's very significant that in his letters to the Macedonian churches in Philippi and Thessalonica, Paul did not find it necessary to include reminders to the saints to provide for the financial needs of their fellow saints in other places. Quite the opposite in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 4, Paul says this about the saints in Macedonia. He says, he says to the Corinthians, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal, listen to this, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. You can, you can almost see the scenario. Paul's saying, look, I know you guys aren't doing very well, so a little bit would be great. And they're saying, no, no, let us give a lot. If obligation or reputation are your motive for giving, you'd do better to keep your money. Still God's money, but He doesn't want it under those, those circumstances. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. See, those, those kinds of gifts are unproductive gifts. They're useless. But when love for God and love for people is our motivation for giving, we become generous, liberal, cheerful givers like the Macedonian saints. And our gifts are a mightily useful delight to God. Love makes money and material possessions useful. And love makes travel useful. And if that sounds like I'm stretching a little, just bear with me. Paul says to the Corinthians, starting in verse 5, he says, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. He tells the saints that the reason he's going to be delayed in coming to them is because he wants to first visit the churches in Macedonia. And this, this little graphic here is of the third missionary journey of Paul. Uh, not second, let's do third. Here we go. Third missionary journey of Paul started in Antioch, Syria, and he came through spent some time, quite a bit of time in Ephesus, which is where he wrote this, likely where and when he wrote this letter to the, to the Corinthians. And then he traveled up here through Macedonia, back down to Corinth, and then headed back the other direction. And, uh, and from Ephesus, Miletus, he, they sailed over to get to Jerusalem with that money that they had been gathering, he and his co-workers. Paul wanted to come to Corinth not as a whistle stop, but when he could remain with them for a time. 
Paul wasn't very fond of whistle stops. He, <laughs> he wanted time for real friendship and fellowship. And this part of the passage is quite a challenge to me, especially when I think about some in this body, some sitting here this morning, and, and what they mean when they talk about leisurely travel or travel for leisure for non, non-business purposes. My pattern, I must admit, when I go on a road trip for pleasure is to drive to where I'm going and to stay there and kind of not avoid a lot of interaction. There are people here who almost every single time they take a road trip to anywhere, they make sure that they, that they target a few people along the way that are their brothers and sisters in Christ that they can visit and they can spend time with and enjoy fellowship with and in both directions. That's convicting to me. Those brothers and sisters love those times with the saints more than they love what many of us would call leisure. You see, that kind of travel, that love, that love-motivated approach to travel builds up the body of the Christ in love. Love makes travel useful. And we shouldn't miss verse 9. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if you look at, at first glance, you might say he's, what he's saying is, I'll come, to, I'll come to you, I'll leave Ephesus and come to you when things are safer where you are. That's not what he's saying. If you read Acts chapter 19, you see, you'll see what he has to what what Luke records about the very fierce opposition that was going on in Ephesus when Paul was writing this letter. Paul saw that context, that circumstance in Ephesus as a wide door for effective ministry. And so he considered it necessary to delay his travel to visit the saints in other places for a time. He was too busy where he was. In other words, guys, the wide door for effective ministry doesn't mean someplace safer than where you are now. That wide door had been opened in this case by God right in the face of opposition from many adversaries. Last Wednesday night, God opened the door for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be presented by more than one person from this body in a gathering of a few hundred people. And that gathering decidedly was not without opponents of the Christ of the Bible. Uh, met a few that were quite opinionated. Many brothers and sisters from this congregation were at that gathering, and God opened doors to many substantive conversations about Christ and about the, the beautiful gospel of Christ with people who desperately need to behold Him and trust in Him. Now, don't get me wrong. None of us, nobody who was there was worried about losing their life or their livelihood. And there are plenty of Christians in plenty of these places in this world who, who have that on, on the table. But there's no question that some at that gathering were very active adversaries of the Christ of the Bible and of the Gospel of Christ. And that's great. That's, that, was, that was one of the coolest opportunities that God has, has set before me and before some others in this body. 
Now, how do you know when a door for the proclamation of the gospel is open or closed by God? Well, the one that is closed is not the one that's hard to get through. It's the one you don't get through. After much prayerful and diligent effort in utter dependence on God. And, and even then, even when you've tried and failed and turned your attention to the next task that God, God has for you, he still might have some more door kicking in mind for that door at a later time. Whatever, beloved, whatever we find to be smooth, easy, friendly, and comfortable, we can count on the fact that that is not where God intends to leave us for any length of time. He left us here to be useful. And the words useful and comfortable are what we call antonyms, opposites. By the way, so are the words loving and easy. Living out the love of Christ is self-denial and sacrifice, not comfort and ease. And, and, and we should be delighted with that. We should be delighted to, to be in the battle with, with the victor, with the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of His kingdom and His purposes. Love makes money useful. Love makes travel useful. But the biggest focus of Paul's conclusion to this book is that love makes people useful. The people of God. And that's what verses 10 to 24 are all about. Paul brings this, this whole matter of godly love into the context of Real people who were well known to his readers in Corinth. First is Timothy. He says, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may, he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren." Adversaries of the gospel were and still are everywhere. I, I'll never forget Colin saying to us once, um, there's no place on earth where it is okay to preach the gospel. Uh, and, and Timothy was, in going to Corinth, would be heading into a whole other set of uh, challenges and, and opposition from, from various people. Now, none of us can guarantee the safety of another child of God, but it is loving for us to be protective of those who are on the front, the frontmost lines in the advance, advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ in decidedly unfriendly places. Paul had run into some of those, those kinds of Christians when he was lowered down in a basket to avoid <laughs> being beaten to death at one point. Paul makes it clear that in, this, in that same verse that whatever protection those Corinthian saints might be able to provide for Timothy, it would not sideline the Lord's work through Timothy. Uh, we don't get to sit on the bench to be safe. He then explains to the Corinthians that another trusted ambassador of Christ, Apollos, was not yet ready to come to them at that time, but he, he would come when he had opportunity. Apollos was introduced in Acts chapter 18 as a courageous believer from Alexandria in Egypt who, whom two of Paul's co-workers, Aquila and Priscilla, helped in his ministry, Apollos' ministry, when they were traveling with Paul through Galatia on the way to Ephesus, where they and Paul now were. So 
we go back to that map for a second, somewhere in this third journey, somewhere right in here, Aquila and, and Priscilla were used by God to help Apollos kind of sort some things out about the things that he should be teaching on behalf of Christ. We're going to get to those two, to Priscilla and Aquila here in a minute. In uh, verses 15 to 18, Paul commends Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Now, Stephanus, if you go way back to chapter 1, verse 16, his household was one of the first groups of Christians that's named in this book. Paul says, when he says, I didn't baptize very many people in Corinth, uh, some of the few that he did baptize were of the household of Stephanus. So I think maybe like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, when Stephanus got saved, there was a bunch of people in his household that got saved at the same time. That same household had, quote, devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Now here Paul singles out three men from that family whom he says have supplied what was lacking on your part for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Now I don't know if that's a rebuke of the Corinthians for kind of not, not coming through or if it's, he's simply saying, you know, they, they, had, they had come alongside Paul at a strategic time. They had filled in where there was a need and taken care of him and refreshed him. Paul urges the Corinthian saints to, quote, be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and the labors. We are to give great priority to the support of those whom God has placed on the frontmost lines of the battle for the souls of men and women. And that means that we submit our needs to their needs. We do without in order that they may have what is needed for the work in which they are engaged. There are many here who very faithfully and sacrificially support missionaries uh, in many places in the world. And that is a, that's a delightful thing to God. The final personal reference in this chapter is to a couple, man and wife, who had an amazing track record of lovingly and very tangibly supporting the ministries of Paul and Apollos and other faithful saints of the Lord. And that couple was, here they're named Aquila and Prisca. And Prisca is just a more formal version of the name Priscilla that we find in the book of Acts. Paul passes along the heartfelt greetings of Aquila and Prisca to the Corinthian saints. That couple was very, very dear to Paul. Uh, Corinth had been their home base when Paul came to Corinth the first time. When he came on that second missionary journey and he spent a good bit of time in Corinth, at least 18 months, he stayed with them. He stayed in their house. And they were tent makers like he was. They shared a vocation. So there was a real, there was a real closeness and camaraderie with these two. Now they, they were already... Veterans okay, of, of, the, of the Lord's work. They had apparently accompanied Paul to uh, Ephesus or joined him there at some point, and, 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 and they were hosting a church there as he, wrote, as he wrote this letter from Ephesus. They're, they were with him. And they had a house church there. 
I mean, they had a house church in Corinth. Now they got a house church in Ephesus, and that's not the only one. Later, they apparently returned to Rome once again. They had been banished from Rome when the Jews were tossed out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius before all of this stuff happened. And in Romans 16, verses 3 to 5, Paul says that this couple, Aquila and Prisca, risked their own necks for him. He said that, that both he and all the churches of the Gentiles owed thanks to that couple. They had a house church in Rome, too, when they went there. Now, 2,000 years later, the love and faithfulness of that couple is still encouraging the saints of the Lord. We're talking about them right now. <laughs> their, their boundless hospitality, their courageous proclamation of the gospel, and their self-denying care for the saints lives on. How's that for a legacy? Beloved, godly, self-denying, Christ-honoring, courageous love makes the people of God eternally useful. You don't have to do, you don't have to strive to do spectacular, high-profile things to be powerfully and eternally useful to God. What you do have to do is love the people of God with the love of Christ and be there for them. Be in the trenches with them. And God's going to use you. He's going to use you mightily. Right in the middle of Paul's commendation of co-workers who had loved and served exceedingly well, we find two verses that, uh, that should get our careful attention. <laughs> in verses 13 and 14, Paul interrupts his commendation of these, these very useful and cherished co-workers with a short course on the useful heart. He presents five very concise and very forceful imperatives to the church. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. In chapter 13, Paul presented godly love as the sine qua non, the without which not of every believer's usefulness. He's doing the same thing now at the end of the book. I call this set of five commands, man up, refined. Man up, redefined. Man up, redefined. When Paul, when Paul says act like a man here, I see that as related to, but not exactly the same as his instruction in 1 Corinthians 13 to put away childish things and to grow up. The other three commands here in verse 13 are all about fortitude and strength in the face of opposition. Be vigilant. Stand firm. Be strong. I believe that Paul is saying, man up, even if you're a woman. He immediately follows verse 13 with the command, and by the way, the reason I say that is because he, he, kept mention, he mentions Prisca, right? She was valiant. You know, you know the word in Proverbs 31, an excellent wife who can find, you know what that word in Hebrew actually means? That word excellent? It means valiant. It's the very same word that was valiant in Proverbs 31. It's the same word that is used in the Old Testament to describe the valiant warriors of King David. The three and the thirty. 
a valiant wife who can find. He immediately follows verse 13 with the command that informs and encompasses the first four commands. Let all that you do be done in love. We live in a world, beloved, that too often equates manliness and even now womanliness with an intimidating bravado that establishes self at the top of every pecking order. It's about attitude, vengefulness, <laughs> control. It is, it is even uh, an exaltation of a short temper that keeps any potential challengers too fearful to ever raise much of a challenge. I call it gangster masculinity. Jesus turns all of that on its head, right? Jesus was and is the perfection of what it means to think and speak and act in keeping with our Creator's intention for a man, the perfect man. And that's the only intention that qualifies as the measure of a man, is God's intention. Jesus' physical presence was not intimidating. Isaiah 53 says, like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was assertive at a level never seen before. He spoke and acted with unrivaled authority even when he was speaking to the most powerful people in the Roman Empire. But he did not assert himself to protect himself. He did not assert himself to structure out the possibility of harm to himself. He didn't even defend himself against false accusations. He allowed himself to be falsely accused, betrayed, arrested, mocked, spat upon, and crucified, all without protest, and all while relentlessly proclaiming the truth and perfectly fulfilling everything that his father had given him to do during his first coming. One of the most piercing messages I've ever heard was while I was in seminary. It was preached by a pastor in his early 30s who had grown up in suburban America. Uh, I, wish I, could, I wish I could remember his name. I tried to find my own documentation of the, of the message and I couldn't find it, but I remember the story like it was yesterday. A few years before he preached the message that I heard, he had taken on an assignment as a pastor in a, a very uh, rough inner city neighborhood filled with gang activity. After first arriving at the, at the building, the church, parked in the back, and he came in and he, he checked out the, the inside of the building and then he, he opened the front door and he walked out and there's a body of a man laying across the street on the sidewalk. First day, he goes and he checks, makes sure that the man is in fact deceased. Then he calls the police, they come, they bring an ambulance, and they, as, they're, as they're checking the guy out and about to cart him away, he asks one of the officers if they, if they happen to know who this guy is, and he says, yeah, he's, he's one of the higher-ups in one of the two gangs that's competing for the territory right here around your church. The pastor asked this guy, this officer, to tell him where their headquarters, where that, that gang's headquarters were, and of course the officer didn't want to tell him, but the pastor was kind of persistent, and so the officer told him where they're, they have a house, it's over there, and that's their headquarters. Stay away from it. Well, as, as soon as, as soon as 
the officers and the ambulance were gone, he made a beeline for that house and he knocked on the door. And a man came to the door and he did not look happy to see him. And very, very quickly, a bunch of other young men, really rough looking men gathered around behind that first guy. And the pastor told them that the reason he was knocking on their doors because and he told them what he had seen. He said, I want to pray with you because of the friend that you just lost. And they let him in and they let him pray. <laughs> and as he prayed, he asked God to tear down the illusion of power and control. The mask of fake masculinity that drove these men to lives of extreme violence and to show them that the measure of a man is not his ability to intimidate and control others in order to protect himself. The measure of a man is the Christ-like, self-denying love that he has for others. He acknowledged in prayer to God that Jesus, the most powerful man, the most powerful man who ever walked this earth, loved more sacrificially, more relentlessly, and more perfectly than anyone has ever loved. He acknowledged to God that the perfect expression of the love of Jesus was at the cross where He poured out His life to eternally save sinners. When He finished praying, He found Himself surrounded by sobbing young men. Within mere days, every single man in that gang had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then Sunday after that, His church was packed. There are other true stories much like that one. If you've ever heard the name Nikki Cruz, uh, crossing the switchblade. He was a gang, a gang member like some of those. And to this day, he walks with the Lord and he's a preacher and he serves the Lord. Uh, get Fred Sanders' book, The Deep Things of God. Talk, he talks about Nikki. Um, and that book's great on many fronts. Beloved, the command act like men means love like Christ. Love, godly, self-denying, Christ-honoring, courageous love makes God's people mighty, miraculously, and eternally useful. Again, Paul concludes, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be anathema. Maranatha, come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Loving Father, we thank You for this letter. Uh, boy, there's so much here. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that we, would, we would spend the rest of our times, the rest of our days on this earth, including, uh, certainly including this marvelous epistle in our, in our study, in our meditations, and especially, Father, in our submission to You. There is much here that demands our attention. Lord, we want to be we want to be mightily used by You during the time that remains to us here. And that means we are to love as Christ has loved us. Make us, make us those kinds of children, Father. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.